At the end of episode 109, I said I was going to put out an extra episode over the weekend, and here it is. You are listening to episode 110 of the Juicebox podcast. This one presented you today without interruption, which is code for no ads. Why am I doing that? Honestly, just didn't have time to put the ads in, and I promised the episode, so now I'm stuck giving it to you. I'm just kidding. Not stuck. I want to do it. Nevertheless, this one is pretty weird. So Elizabeth Rowley has been living with type 1 diabetes for 25 years, since she was a little girl. She went to England eventually to get a degree, met a boy who also had type 1 diabetes, married that boy, and then started a charity to help everyone across the world living with type 1. What? I know, right? That's a lot of, that's a lot of doing. Anyway, listen. Elizabeth's got a great charity called T1 International. I want you to listen to her story about how she grew up with type 1, about being married to someone with type 1, about starting her own charity. It's a really great story. I think you're going to love it. At the end, click on some links. Help her out. I'm Elizabeth Rowley. I'm the founder and director of T1 International. You know what I forgot to tell you? A little tease. At the very end of the episode, I'm going to tell you who next week's guest is. And it is a special guest. It is a handsome guest. It is a famous guest. Ooh. Don't skip to the end. Listen first. Nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making changes to your healthcare plan. All right. Listen through. Don't skip to the end. You'll find out who's coming on next week. Just be patient. Um, I've had type 1 diabetes since I was four years old. Um, so coming up on my 25-year anniversary, which is pretty cool. Um, and I grew up in the United States. I'm now living in the UK. Uh, and really started T1 International for a variety of reasons. But the main one, I guess, is because uh, I realized how privileged I was to grow up in the United States, where I, for the most part, had access to everything I needed to live a full life. And um studied international studies as an undergraduate, went and got my master's degree in international development in London. That's what brought me here. Um, and just sort of was learning about how how little access there is in other parts of the world and wanted to sort of do something about it um, in a way that, as far as we know, isn't isn't being done or addressed. Um, so what T1 International does is we focus on advocacy to hopefully change some of these issues in the long run, as opposed to just giving donations of insulin and supplies, which you know saves lives and is hugely important. We want to also work with governments and healthcare systems, um, along with local advocates, to try to change things, um, to increase access to insulin, increase access to education, test strips, all those things that um, here in the UK uh, I I get. Um, I pay my taxes, but then, you know, I go to the pharmacy and I pick those things up, which is incredible having come from the U.S., where, as we know, prices are getting higher and higher. So that's very much in a nutshell, and I'm happy to answer any questions as well. Excellent. So, yeah, let's, I'll, I'll go backwards and start from the beginning. So you've had diabetes for 25 years, type 1. How old were you when you diagnosed? I was 4. 4. Okay. And so you made out, I mean, 25 years ago, was that like... What that big bricky meter that you left in your house? Yes. It was, yeah. Right? So, it, and it was two weeks in the hospital at diagnosis. Um, so it was very traumatic for me at the time. And yeah, had a huge, a huge big kind of pack that was the test kit with the big meter and all the extra things we carried around. And yeah, things have 
for many people, yeah, come a long way. Yeah. So how did you make out growing up with it in, you know, in school? And like, did you even test at school? Or did you just sort of take insulin in the morning and insulin at night? Or how did, how did it, how was management then for you? Yeah, I know I did test. I tested pretty regularly. Um, I've always had quite easily fluctuating blood sugars as, as many people do. And especially, you know, as a kid, but um, no, yeah, I had pretty, pretty supportive school for the most part. I mean, my mom was definitely incredibly involved, making sure that everything was sort of taken care of and that everybody knew what was going on. But I definitely, I have memories of testing in the classroom and all the kids looking at the meter because back then the meters were slower. So it counted down from 10, I think. <laughs> um, so everyone would count together to then see what the number was. Um, so that was kind of, I guess, a nice thing. I mean, I didn't feel, you know, bullied or anything because of it, which is great. Everybody was sort of involved in the, uh, the excitement of finding out what your blood sugar was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what made what, it a positive thing. So you went to, where did you go to school? I'm assuming you got your undergrad here in, in the U S yeah. 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 So I went to a very small, um, college called Brad, uh, Bradley university in Peoria. And then you went to, so when you went to London, you just never came back or what, what, <laughs> yeah, well, basically. Yeah. So I, um, I knew I wanted to, to get my master's degree in something to do with development. Um, Oh, sorry. This, oh, you're fine. I, I've got a, as I said, I'm dog sitting today and she's making some noise. I have <laughs> dogs here too. And it's a podcast. So it's yeah. free. And if anybody doesn't like it, they, there's nothing they can do about it. So yeah. uh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I knew I wanted to get my master's in, in something to do with um, development. At, the, at that time, I was kind of overwhelmed by all the problems in the world and hadn't quite honed in on, on sort of tackling global type one, but, um, yeah, came to the London school of economics in 2011. Um, and then I actually met my husband, uh, well, my, who was soon to be my husband through a type one social group. So he has type one diabetes as well, but he's, he's British. So that's what's kept me here. Yeah. Nice. Congratulations. That's, that's wonderful. Um, okay. So what, at what point through your, your grad studies, do you, say to yourself, there's countries all over the world, no one understands type 1 diabetes, and, and that's why these people aren't being better. Like, is that your assertion, that if everyone just understood a little more, um, it might lead them to actually help a little more? Or, I mean, have I oversimplified it? Yeah, no, I think that was my initial thought. So, I mean, I had sort of been thinking about you know, even since my undergrad days, um, putting putting myself in the position of, well, what if I lived in X country where the health care systems aren't very strong? Or what if I was amidst whatever natural disaster? What would happen to me? And then I'm thinking about, well, this is actually happening. So, I mean, it was on my radar, but it wasn't until I was kind of doing my master's degree that I thought, well, you know, it's taking me a lot of effort to find information and to find any sort of data and statistics about the the global diabetes problem and lack of access to insulin. And there are a few things out there, but I thought, hey, I'll start a blog and I will pull together what I can find to share with others. And that's really what it started out as. So kind of like you said, I just need to let other people know about what's going on, what what the situation is and yeah, get get people to 
to first be aware and then to hopefully start doing something. And that's how it eventually turned from a blog into, okay, we want to be a charitable organization that's actively working with communities around the world to to address some of these things rather than sort of more passively. But we do think awareness is the first step in sort of building advocates and advocacy movements. What does that look like day to day? I mean, when, do you... I mean, you get up in the morning and, you know, you're not, you're not sending supplies to people like you, you said earlier. It's, yes. And so when you get up in the morning, what, what's your goal today? So, well, my, it's funny, my day is now because I, I'm now doing this full time. I was previously working full time in the charity sector as well as sort of running the charity full time, which not sustainable. And now I'm lucky enough, I can at least for, for a while um, be, be doing this full time. So my day is really a mix of everything. I'm doing administration emails, but then I'm working on some of our projects. So those kind of things would be, for example, we just put out our advocacy toolkit, which we're really proud of. And it's kind of a first step for people, or even a second or third step for people who are interested in advocacy, but might not know exactly how to direct their efforts or, you know, I want to do something to change a situation, but I don't know where to start. Or I have a really big, like, I want to fix access to insulin. That's a huge you know, a giant goal. So it helps you kind of hone in on something and create a plan of action and to work with others to to get your message out there and things like that. So um, I, for a long time, I was, you know, day to day working with some awesome volunteers to, to create that tool, which is now out there. So we're physically sending that to some of the groups we work with around the world. Um, and so my next step, I'll be writing some training um, to kind of make sure we bring this to life. It's great to have that resource, but we want to make sure that people can use it and that it'll be most effective and applicable to their situation in their country or their town. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah that's what... I'm sorry. You're, just, you're, you're capturing people who sort of have a big heart, a lot of energy. They want to do something. They might not know exactly how to direct that energy. And you're sort of helping them kind of fast forward into being an, like, a, like an advocate that, that has impact. Yeah, yeah. hopefully. Yeah, that's, that's really that's, cool. Yeah, that's the goal. And it's, it can be overwhelming when you, you know, we put out a lot of information about what it's like to live with type one in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, or Russia. And uh, there's a lot of different various problems, but, you know, so that can be overwhelming for somebody who wants to make change. So what we're trying to show is, you can start local or even looking in a global sense, but just start, you know, small steps. Once you see the impact you can make in a small way, you can continue and replicate that in many ways, which is going to make a huge impact. I love to, to share about um, the group in Fiji that we know who managed to get rid of the import tax on test strips, which sounds like a small thing, but it's actually a huge feat because it makes the strips a lot more affordable for people with diabetes when a lot of people there don't test their blood sugar at all. So that kind of thing, it shows that working with a strong plan and a strong group of people, you can make a change that, you know, you can build on that change as well. Is that, using that as an example, is that something as simple as you know, Fiji has an import tax on things that come in to the, to the island and everything just gets lumped into one pile and it takes someone to, to get the attention of government and say, look, it's, you know, it's cool. I understand we're taxing things that come in, but why this thing? Like, couldn't this be eliminated from that, from that rule? And, and then at some point through hard work and diligence, it actually happened. Like, and now, like, how much did it drop the price? Do you know? 
that's a great question. I don't actually have exact amounts, but I know it was significant enough that people who weren't testing at all were then able to at least occasionally test. Yeah. So I spent a little time in, um, Oh geez, excuse me. In the Dominican Republic. Um, and just, I went down there to speak and it, it, I think it's, I think the story sort of fits here with your conversation. So I was, I was approached by an organization. They said, can you, can you come down and talk about, you know, you know, talk about what it's like to live, you know, when you don't have a, t- a bunch of money, like how do you manage with, with not very much money? And, yeah. and I, I really gave it just a ton of thought and went down there with some prepared remarks and, and some ideas about what I was going to say. I was probably in the Dominican for about 10 hours when I told the organ, the organizers, I need to go back to my hotel room and spend a day back there thinking about this again, because the poverty that I imagined in my mind that's not the poverty I found when I got there. It was it was significantly different. And and to the you know to your point of you know if you get 30 test trips a month, do you take really great care of yourself for 4 days or do you cuz testing yourself once a day is not valuable. Yeah. You, you, right right. And so and so when you see that people are making decisions like that, you know, even when the when the stuff is being provided for them by you know by the hospitals or the government or however it ends up working you know place to place, it, it's still not enough stuff. It's not enough supplies, right. right? And so, what do you do when you have enough insulin for two weeks? Do you take great yeah. care of yourself for two weeks, or do you take marginable care of yourself for thirty days? Or and and you start hearing stories about kids who 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 died in their you know before they became teenagers of effects that should have taken even even a, a, you would even think in America for a person who was not maybe lucky enough to have insulin or all the things it would take them decades to 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 die this way these people were dying in five, mm-hmm. five six eight years you, yeah. you know it was just i mean it really changed my opinion of I don't know what, I guess my opinion was pretty, pretty focused in, you know, my, my own life and what, what's going on here in America. And it's easy to be upset here, right? Like you, yeah, of course. Right, right. And, and, but it's just so much different in other places. It's yeah, no. And actually that's a really, that's an incredible story that actually fits with this whole idea, this sense of, yeah, to sort of recommend certain care to patients when, and this is happening in the U S as well with consultants sort of you know, calling patients non-compliant when they're not asking, well, are they non-compliant because they can't actually adhere to this regimen because they can't afford it, for example, or can't get it. And that's an issue around the world. But also what we found, something that we try to do is share sort of best practice between organizations. So um, not only are we trying to like connect people around the world with local organizations or to set up a support group for the first time, we visited Kenya um and they, there was a clinic there who they actually told us about how they were previously receiving a certain number of vials of insulin from one of the big pharmaceutical companies every, you know, every month or every few months. And um, they, they had enough for the patients and, um, you know, they had things sort of people were somewhat stable in their regimen. And then they realized that the company told them they were cutting it off and they, had, they didn't have enough to continue supplying the same amount of insulin. So it's incredible because you kind of 
get to see these really innovative solutions that the clinics come up with. So in this case, with the insulin shortage, they ended up calling every single patient to explain what had happened, ask if they were willing to pay a small amount, even though these are very poor people, and saying, you know, this will cover the shortfall and ensure that that you are not going to go without and it's still significantly cheaper than you would have to pay, you know, just going out on the market. So that, and, and, you know, there were more specifics in a way that they, they set it up so that they could cover themselves and they come up with the solution as well as same with the test strips you were talking about. Um, do you test, you know, take care, good care of yourself for a few days and then don't test at all. And they were recommending patients sort of at least test their blood sugar twice or, do every a couple days every week where you test regularly so that you can then compare and find patterns and they find that 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 works well so they know what adjustments to make yeah rather than testing once a day which is what a lot of communities are doing it's just sort of testing once a day but you realize yeah that doesn't give you enough information to make judgments about your health care so anyway it was just a, an incredible thing to to see and learn about the solutions they had come up with which now we're able to share with other communities who are struggling with the same things yeah, it's just it's in my mind. I, I guess I picture like a situation where you, you know, can you imagine feeling, I don't know, dizzy and realizing your blood sugar might be low, and testing and seeing that it's low, and then not being able to test again to see if you've rectified it or yeah, exactly. Or if you've gone so far in the other direction that now you're going to be high for three days or you just it's it's such a it's such a crazy, um frightening idea and, yeah, and then these people, people live like that constantly it's it's really cool what you're doing i mean that's uh i you know that's i don't know like i i really wanted to talk to you i guess because when you when you hear somebody talk about it in these terms it really does like you know like i'm upset because of co-pays right yeah that i can actually pay or or you know and even if it's say say it's a copay that you can't pay it's, you know, like when, when, when you hear somebody here go, oh, you know, I lost my Dexcom sensor, which, by the way, I think is a tragedy. Um, yeah. You know, you, you still have a meter, right? right? Or exactly. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like you, you haven't come anywhere near uh, the people that, that you guys are trying to, to, to help and assist and, 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 and draw attention to. So here's my question. Is, is it working? Like, do you, <laughs> right? Like, are you seeing positive change i mean beyond fiji are you seeing things go your way enough that you're excited like that excitement that you had initially is it still burning in you or are you, yeah oh yeah. definitely i mean we we knew when we sort of decided as an organization that we wanted to focus on advocacy rather than sort of sponsorship or whatever you want to call it we knew it was going to be sort of this is the long run game it's not it's not like you see an outcome immediately so we're aware of that and i think you know, it's it is a it is a big problem and it can be tough. And when you're, as we've said, when you're seeing prices go up like crazy in the U.S. and the same things are happening in other parts of the world, it feels hard. You know, with any of this kind of work, it feels hard to keep going. But I would say the passion is still burning. I mean, the groups that we're working with believe in it, and I mean, there are other there are other examples like Fiji that that definitely keep me and the rest of us going. And it's just sort of knowing that we're not gonna we're not gonna see a result tomorrow, but that doesn't mean it's not it's not important and it's not worthwhile because we we yeah we believe in in doing it this way and we believe in working with communities rather than just sort of saying oh here's a quick fix we can put on it. Um, so if if they if they think that 
you know, all together, we're doing it the best way. We're going to keep doing it. So, hey, tell me a little bit about, um, do you have kids? No. Okay, so you and your husband are just two people with type 1 who are married. How long have you been married? Uh, We have been married just over four years. Um, Yeah, I believe it's just over four years. I like that you almost don't know. That's nice. Yeah, (laughs) time flies. It's crazy. He would probably be not so sure either. (laughs) How do you guys handle – so this is interesting. So I I ask people a lot – not that we can kind of get off the path for a second. But I ask people a lot who are like married. um, They have type 1. Their spouse doesn't. Like how much do you – is your spouse involved in understanding how your blood sugar is like day-to-day in your care? Do you guys – share information do you help each other or is it two separate see i find this very interesting so yeah no so we i think you know we recognize how lucky we are that first and foremost you don't have to explain what it's like to have low blood sugar or high blood sugar um so and we definitely like share if we're annoyed about something or um yeah we're pretty open about it we're not yeah we're not secretive but it's just funny because like I mentioned, I've always had pretty erratic blood sugars, you could say, and I've tried the low carb thing and that helps somewhat, but he's, he's a runner and he's really tall and skinny, so he can't do too much low carb. Um, or it has, you know, he needs to just be careful about keeping his calories up. So that's interesting, but he's obviously really supportive of that and has decreased his, his intake, but it's just funny to see, how we can eat the exact same thing, count the carbs, give ourselves our insulin, and oftentimes, like, his blood sugar will be perfect two hours later, and mine's crazy. So it's frustrating, but it also reminds me that, okay, I'm not I'm not doing this wrong. I just have a body that's maybe a bit more broken. I don't know. Person to person, the, 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 the effects of something just change. So do you have um, – let me see. I'm just like this. So I just have so many questions. So, <laughs> so, like, is there any like? Do you feel competitive like with your A one Cs? Like, or, like no. you, know, you don't ever like look and go like, ah, oh, you got me. Like, or not, no. no, no, good. <laughs> do you go to We're get? We're not competitive because he knows that I, I personally, I know that works for some people being competitive, but I think he knows so well that I work so hard at my diabetes and I don't see the outcomes that I want that he's really understanding and he doesn't, yeah, I mean, he almost doesn't like to say because his is so good and then I'll get mine and be not so happy about it. So, um, do you, so do you think he sort of like, do you think he keeps his more private because of that or like, the, the, cause it's such an inch, like, you know, do you, have you ever seen him test his blood sugar and turn away and not tell you or, or, or hide you know, it from like, there's the occasion, there's the occasion <laughs> where like, um, He'll sort of make a sound, and I'll think it's because he's annoyed that it's not a great blood sugar, but actually it'll be like because he's surprised that it's a good blood sugar again. So it's like, I, like I'm, I obviously want him to be healthy, but I think it's sometimes he probably like he shouldn't, but he feels like guilty because he has a quote unquote easier time. Not that it's easy for anyone. Do you have but do you have different management styles the two of you like the way you handle things for yourself personally? Uh, I'd say quite similar. I'd say I'll, I'll notice he's gotten low at the same time every day for three or four days or nights in a row. And I'll have to repeat multiple times. Maybe you should look at your basal right there. (laughs) Um, so that's kind of funny because 
it's like he's just I don't know I, I don't want to say lazy but no, yeah he's living he, his he, life he just yeah. It's, yeah it's hard to it happens with me with my daughter like I'm like oh I should change that and yeah, then exactly. There's, then there's that hopeful party. It's like maybe it'll just go back the way it was. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just, oh, it's just a blip. Yeah. So again, I don't blame him, but it, that, that certainly happens. Whereas from an outsider, I'm like, uh, we've woken up at 4 a.m. for three nights now. Let's let's get this on track here. So here's my here's my thought. Right. I have this. I have a wild idea for you. I think over a weekend, you guys should manage each other instead of yourself. I would love to know what happened. I, I want to <laughs> I want to find out if. Because, by the way, this is none of my business, but I'm super interested to know, like, because you said something earlier that it's sort of like it made me sad a little bit. Like you're like, maybe my body's more broken. You said, and I thought, yeah. oh God, what if, what if it's oh, and it just made me yeah. sad. Like, like, right. And so maybe, maybe it's not your body. Like maybe it's just something invisible that you you haven't figured out yet. Like I would maybe love- I hope that's the case, but. 25 years. No, but I think you figured it like, you know, I get get your point. Like you would think you'd figured it out, but wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be cool if you switched and you were just like, Oh my God, how did you do that? I'm like, yeah, that would be amazing. (laughs) He said something super simple to you. Like, uh, I just changed your pre-bolus from 10 minutes to 15 minutes or. Yeah. 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 You'd just punch it. At the moment we're, we are, it's it's great because I'm sure we take it for granted because we're just like, Oh, how much would you give for this? Or you think I should correct this much? So we are, you know, we're quite open about it as is. But yeah, if we did full on swapped management, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. See, that would be a great Lindsay Lohan movie in the in the nineties. <laughs> so instead, yeah. instead, you've obviously seen the the Parent Trap remix, uh, remake, okay. and, and you've laughed. Uh, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, I didn't mean to like delve into your personal life. It just, I just found it really like it's such an interesting idea yeah. that there's somebody else in the space, like with you, everyday living, who understands the disease completely, Definitely. but isn't completely involved with you. So. Uh, that's, yeah. That is really, that's cool. What does he do for a living? He's a talent planner. Um, so, yeah, he looks at sort of where houses should or shouldn't be built and why. That sounds yeah. like a very British thing. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. You, but he's also been hugely a part of the development of TUA International as well. He's been um, just really supportive along the way and offering a lot of insight and expertise as well. Really great. I, um, so you were you said earlier and you kind of glossed over it for a minute that at one point you were working a full time job and handling the the organization, but at, yeah. at this point now you're full time with T One International. Yeah, so um, it's still a fully volunteer run organization for now. Um, we're working on sort of getting sustainable income and being able to, uh, you know, we want to exist long after we're not around anymore. I mean, ideally it wouldn't need to exist, but realistically it probably will. Um, so, so yeah, we, we relocated outside of London. We're a couple hours outside of the city now. Um, and I'm able to, for at least a while, give my full efforts to running the organization, which has been fantastic. We've sort of grown a lot in the past eight months that I've been doing it. How, how do you accept, I'm assuming you accept donations to help you keep going. Where do people do that through your website? Yep, on the website we've got a big donate button and information about our financials. We try to be really transparent about that because we don't um, take any money from sort of pharmaceutical industry. We just want to be as tra- transparent and able to speak out as possible. A lot of the, a lot of 
diabetes organizations do, which is, you know, their prerogative. But for us, we just want to try to keep that line separate because we're advocating so much about access. Um, so that makes it trickier for us. But we're, yeah, we're, we're coming along. So. so it's T1International.com, right? That's it. Yep. Yeah, cool. And so, it, so, you know, we talked earlier, like if you have a bunch of energy and you want to focus it somehow... Elizabeth could help you do that. But if you have yeah. a bunch of energy and you want to just focus it through your wallet, she could also very gladly accept that too. That so, is correct. I, I you would love that. <laughs> and then that lets you keep going full time at it and, and really pushing um, and spending. Yeah, time. yeah. Because yeah. currently, you know, all of our funds go go to, to our work and um, there there are, you know, some people like that we're all volunteer run and I appreciate that, that it you know, all goes towards the cause, but we do, we'd love to see ourselves not growing hugely, but we'd love to have some staff because you do have to have people to make the work happen. So, so yeah, we're, we're working to, to build as a sustainable organization, but that one that, you know, spends its money in the right ways. Yeah, that's excellent. So tell me um, a little bit about living, the difference between living in America and living in England with, with diabetes. So here, hopefully if you're lucky, you have insurance. You have co-pays, you, but there you just wander to the pharmacy and be like, hey, what's up? I need test strips or how does it? Yeah, so, I mean, when I, when I first moved, I, yeah, I went to the pharmacy. I just gave them my prescription. When you're living here in the United Kingdom, you have what's called a medical exemption certificate if you have a condition like type 1 diabetes, it's, you know, non-preventable chronic condition. And you take a little box when you get your prescriptions, you show your medical exemption card, and you walk away with your stuff. And it's incredible. And every single time I go to the pharmacy, I'm just filled with gratitude. Um, if you're, yeah, if you're a tax, you know, if you're a taxpayer, you're, you're, you're paying for this, but... Um, the way the system works is they got you covered and it's it's amazing and I think a lot of people and I can see why but sort of take that for granted and can't comprehend that people are paying thousands upon thousands in the United States or anywhere else yeah just for a, a couple of vials of insulin or, or some test strips or so hey so do you not even leave this do you not reach into your pocket even when you're there there's no money changes hands no money changes hands. It's that's why it's so yeah, coming from the US. Yeah, that, it's incredible. Yeah, that is amazing. It really is. And do your um uh, uh, wow, hold on, that took me a second. Listen, yeah, you, 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 yeah, caught, you, you caught me by surprise really... there. Like I was at least thinking you had to like grease palms on the way out. Like you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. thanks Here's a lot. A little something. Here's something. No. You know what I mean? No. I don't know what your money is, uh Pictures of ducks, or I don't know exactly. Um, that might be Canada. I, that's a goose, I guess. Never mind. Um, I know nothing about anywhere that I don't live. Uh, I'm wonderfully ignorant. <laughs> but 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 that's crazy. So um, I, I had another question. If you don't mind, are your parents still alive? Yeah. They, yeah. How do you ever get like phone calls from your mom that are like, "Hey, how's your blood sugar?" Or do you not talk about it like oh, that? Hello. Oh, did I lose you? Oh, there we go. I'm sorry. sorry. So, do I ever get phone calls? Did your mom that? ever randomly call up and like, "Hey, how's your diabetes been?" Or, <laughs> or do you guys not talk about it the way you did because you were really young? So, when you're yeah. diagnosed when you're four, your mom is intertwined in your in your health in a way that a lot of people don't get to be. And then you go off to school, then you break her heart and move out of the country. I'm assuming. <laughs> and then, yeah. Did she ever wondered, or do you talk about it ever? Um, we, we don't so much anymore. I kind of went through that phase that probably a lot of people do where you kind of, even when I was 
maybe right before college. I can't remember when it was, but it was sort of like, stop asking me questions. I got this. Like, uh, you know, they didn't mean to. They care about me. But but the questions made me almost feel, you know, judged or something, even though I know that wasn't their intent. Um, So it kind of from there, you know, faded off a bit. We'd talk about it occasionally. And um, when I when I started doing the low carb diet a couple years ago and my A1C dropped what for me was quite dramatically, I kind of told family and that I was thrilled about it and, you know, they were supportive, but they, you know, they, they want to know how I'm doing in general and, and that includes diabetes, but they don't sort of say, what was your last day when see Elizabeth or anything like that. Okay. Yeah. I just didn't know. Like I, I tried to listen, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, I asked so that you could tell me that your mom doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. So the people who are listening, who have four, <laughs> who have four year olds can realize that one day their children will be off on their own doing great and not need yes. and, and that your yeah. mom's still alive, living her life. And, and, and exactly. Right, right. I, I do think it changes for most people anyway, quite dramatically, you know, I know how exhausting and how much hard work it is for parents. Um, but it, yeah, it does get easier. I think the older, the older they get and the more responsibility they take. Yeah. The minute my daughter leaves the house, I'm going to sleep for a month. I'm just, <laughs> just going to go to sleep in like May and tell somebody to wake me up in June, I think. And then yeah. I will, uh, yeah. I, I will, I will then wake up refreshed and looking Completely younger. Understand I'm, that. I'm hoping Elizabeth, cause I look old and I think it's, yeah. I think it's from not sleeping as much as I should. Um, oh. no, listen, it's not your fault. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate your empathy. It came right out. That was delightful. Uh, thank you so much. No, I do. I, I think, you know, I'm I'm from the side of of the, the kid who had to sort of live with, sort of live it. But I obviously have much more empathy for my parents now than I'm sure I did when I was younger about how much, yeah, how much work it is. Have you spent time thinking about that? Like the the effort that must have gone on that you weren't completely aware of as a child? Yeah, yeah. I did a talk a couple years ago at sort of a a local organization volunteer evening sort of about my own journey. And uh, my aunt sent me a picture of kind of a few days or maybe a week or something before I was diagnosed. And she just was telling me some of her memories from the time about how um, how both my parents were just so determined to be involved, to, to like raise money for JDRF when they they are not the kind of people that are would go around asking for money and that kind of thing. So just just giving me like a bit of insight into how how much they cared and how much they put themselves out there because of that. And in addition to the day to day, you know, and learning to do shots. And I, I mean, I remember how upset my parents were when I was in the hospital and all of that. So I definitely thought about it more and um, yeah, have a different perspective than when I was sort of going through it myself. I would, I would imagine. Hey. Um... Do you find British humor funny, or do you sit there watching your husband laugh and wonder what the heck he's laughing at? <laughs> you know, I that is a great question because I I think I've really evolved. I couldn't stand like the British Office. Right. I, I really liked the American version, even though I know it wasn't the original. Um, but that just as an example, yeah, I I couldn't I didn't really like it, and then I watched it several times since, and I quite enjoy it so it's and it's either i just said quite <laughs> yeah, um, i quite enjoy it <laughs> so yeah i think i've evolved and there's still there's still plenty of british shows that i don't like but i think i can appreciate it a bit more now i can just remember sitting in a friend's house when we were like teenagers and his mom 
just loving like like British television and she's mm. not not from the UK. Yeah, yeah, my mom loves it too. And they're laughing and I'm sitting there going, "What the hell is happening?" Yeah. And, and so like, why? I don't believe that's funny, but I mean, and I wasn't like the the subtlety wasn't lost on me. I'm not like a ham-fisted like, you know, like, you know, I I don't need to be yeah, hit, yeah. hit over the head with chuckles. And I could see why it was funny. I just it wouldn't make me laugh. And I was like, Yeah, oh. yeah. yeah. So yeah, it is that it's very specific no at times. No kidding. Do you like living? Uh, do you do you get home? I guess you assume uh, you think of home as there. I would imagine. But do you get back to the U.S. often or no? Not as much as I'd like. Yeah. It's so costly to, mm-hmm. to fly. Um, yeah, I do. I miss I miss my family a lot. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of pros to living living here and at the moment you know our health is secure which is a hugely important thing two type ones moving back to the states would be very stressful but you'd have to go back see that's interesting you'd have to go back to really like cemented well-paying jobs you couldn't exactly you couldn't just trip back and be like hey i'll figure this out you'd have exactly you'd have a pre-existing condition you would be you'd be Gee, you'd be persona non grata in the industry, you know, in the insurance industry. They'd be like, "Not you, baby." Totally. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, I never even thought of that. So if it came to where you needed to move home or wanted to, it would almost be impossible. Yeah, I mean, it feels that way. I, I, I'd have to. I'd just have to get a job, and and then to an international would go back to being a, either a second full time or or even less because quality of life in the UK is. For even, you know, standard jobs is 37 and a half hours a week at most. And in the, in the States, it's 40, usually 40 plus, 60, you know. My, my, um, my wife seems to sit with her laptop until she falls asleep. So. Exactly, yeah. 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 So it's like uh, to even, yeah, I mean, I'm just in such a, I'm such a privileged position to be able to be here and and running this thing, which we hope is putting something good out into the world. But yeah, if we needed to move back, it would... It would change many things and add so many levels of stress to our lives. You want to move there? I think that. <laughs> I, hey, I I wouldn't I wouldn't knock it for for the most part. Yeah, you're like the tourism council for the UK. You don't even realize for, <laughs> for the T1 community for the T1D community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Move. So, how would that work? Like, you, how long ago did you move there? Um, I moved in. 2011 to to do my master's degree and yeah I didn't know I would be here permanently but as as we said met met my husband and the rest is history from there but um are you a citizen now because you like no it's just about as hard as it would be for him to be a citizen in the states or it might be more hard for him now I'm not sure but uh it takes even though we're married it it takes several rounds of uh of having a what is called a biometric residence permit. It's kind of another word for a visa. Uh, so I have, you know, legal residence and right to work and everything, but I am not a citizen yet. It'll be a couple more years before I can take the test. Oh, no kidding. But you will try. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. I might as well. Yeah, why not? You want your kids, yeah. you have kids one day, you want them to understand that humor. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's the key. That's really the whole thing. They, You want your future children to understand Faulty Towers. I think that's yeah. exactly what this is about. <laughs> so, John a, would love that, my husband. Yeah, yeah. he likes Faulty Towers. Well, I've just been mad at him since you said he was tall and skinny. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> Poor John. He'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> well, Elizabeth, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that you were really delightful. And I, I want to kind of go over one more time before we get off that uh, – you know, just about 
about how people can get in touch with the organization. If you know, if somebody's listening to this, I have a, a fairly um, robust listenership in the UK. So if people want to um, to uh, to get in touch and volunteer and help out, yeah. like how would they go about that? Yeah. So again, yeah, our, our webpage is t1international.com, and we have uh, again a, a place to donate. And then there's backslash volunteer is our volunteer page, which shows different volunteer opportunities. And then we have a contact form on that page as well. If you would like to, if you think you have a different kind of skill that isn't on that page that you want to share or just generally want to, to get involved, get in touch with us, we'd be happy to chat with you about that and answer any questions about what we do or, um, yeah, what we have done and ways you can get involved. Cool. So if somebody's got a burning desire in their heart and they're in the UK or anywhere, I'm assuming I could volunteer yeah. from somewhere else, right? Yes. Yeah. We have volunteers from all around the globe. All right. So, yeah, you do not have to be in the UK. We're a very virtual organization. So um, anyone, anywhere, just uh, hit us up and check out the website. We have loads of information and stories. We have an active blog. Um, we have a, a global map tool where you can click on a country and read about what it's like to live with type 1 there and compare that to other countries, which we're always building on when we make new connections around the world. So, there's lots to learn and read about and, and plenty to get involved with. Um, a quick a quick and easy thing you can do as well, if you don't want to donate or volunteer, we have a Type 1 Access Charter, which is just laying out five basic rights that everyone with Type 1 or Type 2 diabetes should have, access to insulin, test strips, education, life free from discrimination, access to healthcare. And if you support those as a human, um, you can sign on, it's quick and easy online. Um, and then you can also encourage other people to sign on. This will help with our advocates around the world. They can use this to show, look, we have hundreds of people from, we've got now over 50 countries have signed on to this to show that they support these basic rights. So, um, yeah, it's, it's growing. And the more names we have on there, the bigger our voice can be. That's excellent. Okay. Uh, so T1International.com. I hope anybody that's listening checks it out and tries to figure out a, a way that can help. Um, at the very least, a little money, right? And at the at the yeah. most, maybe their time. So cool. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. I really appreciate. Yeah, it. thank you, Scott. It's been great chatting. There's links in your show notes, but you can go to t1international.com to see everything that Elizabeth is doing for people living all over the world with type one diabetes. Before I tell you who the special guest is going to be in episode 111, I just want to remind you that if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or tell a friend. Show them how to find it. Show them how to subscribe. When you share the podcast with somebody else, not only are you helping it to grow, but you're helping it to become a place where people want to come on and talk. People like... The star of Baby Daddy, Derek Thieler. Now, not only is Derek been a type 1 diabetic since he was a tiny, tiny little baby. Not only does his sister have type 1 diabetes, but ladies, I'm talking to you. He is super handsome and frequently is found in the world without his shirt on. So I'm thinking bonus for you. If you know who Derek is, subscribe now so you don't miss it. It's going to be out early next week. If you don't know who Derek is, I'd give him a little Google right now, pop up some Google images, and then well, that should be enough to get you sitting in front of your podcast app waiting for Derek to come on the podcast next week. He gives a fantastic interview. He's a guy who is really focused on community and building relationships between people with type 1 diabetes. 
He and I are going to have a really great open conversation about living with type 1, growing up with type 1, acting in Hollywood with type 1, and his desires to be a movie superhero one day. I am Derek Thieler. I uh, am a type 1 diabetic. I had I've been di- I was diagnosed when I was 3 years old and uh, now I'm 30, so I've had it 27 years and um, yeah, I I grew up in I was born in Alaska and then grew up in Colorado. And I, I got my degree in pre-medicine at Colorado State University because uh, I wanted to learn as much as I could about my disease. And I, I specialized in sports medicine and nutrition. And um, I, uh, I guess I, I kind of thought that I was going to go that route and get into uh, get into endocrinology. But uh, my senior year of college, I, I realized that what I really wanted to do was go to go to Hollywood and be an action hero. <laughs> 